Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, this is Maggie, and on this long-awaited episode, we are doing the 70th Best Picture winner, Titanic. Titanic is a 1997 epic romance and disaster film. It was directed, written, and produced by James Cameron, and it follows the love story between Jack and Rose, played by Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio, against the backdrop of the sinking of the Titanic. And let's just say it was so much better than the way Cavalcade used Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) It was. Yeah, this, I guess, is technically our our second best picture uh, to reference the sinking of the Titanic. And let's just say this one uh, was a lot more effective and packed more of an emotional punch for sure. At the time it was made, it was the most expensive film ever made. I'm not surprised. Weren't many of those sets life-size or at least like large-scale miniatures? There were large-scale. So they built a large-scale miniature of the Titanic. And actually, I think it was the top two decks were actually like they used were like full sets that they used to shoot on. So they did that. Obviously, we'll talk about the interiors and art design, but they're phenomenal. And it was actually very important to James Cameron to do a lot of research on this and to get as much right as possible. So like all of the China was reproduced to be like the White Star Cruise Line China at the time. They used what few photos of the Titanic we have as reference, but they also used like photos from the sister ship, the Olympic things were researched pretty heavily historically. Like that doesn't mean that there aren't historical inaccuracies or anachronisms, but in general, like really trying to get stuff right. And then also the footage of the Titanic underwater, they shot that. Oh, they didn't pull that from like past expeditions. Oh, no, they did. I think it was 12 like visits and dives to the Titanic to get that footage. And Cameron had actually like, built a model of the wreck and said like, okay, here's where I want this shot. Here's where I want this shot. So they would like kind of rehearse and then go down and get the shots because the cameras they were using only had like very limited amount of film that they could film on. Oh, geez. That, I mean, talk about doing it on hard mode, but uh, again, like with some of the CGI effects that you do notice in the film, which to their credit, I think were used judiciously enough that for the, on the whole, they hold up, you can still tell at times, but that would be way better than actually filming. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Actually filming is way better than trying to CGI it with the tech at the time. Well, and it gives you like the vibe of it because one of the other things that Cameron really wanted was because um, shortly before he started developing this, there had been like a documentary on the Titanic. They only found where it had sunk in like 85. So it was like kind of a renewed thought. Um, you know, it sunk in... 1912 so like uh, you know in 1992 there would have been a pretty recent anniversary of it Mm -hmm. and he really want like was really interested in the titanic and then you know going to do the dive he said um i was reading a quote which i'm obviously paraphrasing now but that when he came up from the dive he had been very focused on like getting the shots he wanted but he came up and then just started crying because he it suddenly hit him like this was a tragedy that happened to real people. And there are so many people who died during it. um, And, you know, the people who lived through it too also like carried that with them forever. And so it was very important to him to 
really drive home the human aspect of the story and not have it be just like like disaster porn basically and be like oh watch this horrible thing happen but to really be like this happened to people and to take a lot of the things that really happened and you know he used a lot of historic figures in the characters you know people who were really on the ship now as always with you know people from history who were real people we will be talking about these people in as in relation to their character in the movie, mm-hmm. maybe drop like a couple other factoids that we like Google separately about them. But like, you know, really the accuracy was important. And I think that really adds to like the authenticity of the story. Yeah. And I, I will say he doesn't pull punches in the latter portion of the film where he no. zooms in on the sinking as it were. So I think like kind of at the top here, definitely want to warn every, anybody that like, it, this film we're going to discuss suicide like a mass disaster where like 1500 people died so just be aware that those topics are going to come up yeah i think i think most people are probably aware but again just like driving that home for anybody who isn't you know all of that work and all of that money pays off because the movie was incredibly successful at the box office And it also was incredibly successful at the Oscars, which is why we are talking about it. (laughs) So it tied with what at the time was the movie that had the most Oscar nominations, which was All About Eve, where it had 14. And it tied with, at the time, the film that had won the most, which was Ben-Hur with 11 Oscars. And I will say, actually, the parallels between Ben-Hur and Titanic I get because they are both these just like epic scale epics. You know, like, the, like <laughs> yeah. I think Titanic's the first, like, true epic we've had in a little while. I don't, it, I don't know. Would you think the English patient, like, qualifies as an epic? I think it in some sense it does, but I don't know. It didn't, it didn't feel the same way. Like, it probably technically qualifies as an epic because it was, like, three and a half hours long or something. But it didn't feel, like, the scale of it didn't feel as big as like, I agree. this does. In which, I don't know if other people consider this, but when I'm, like, defining an epic, to me, part of it is like the scale, which I realize is not super definable. <laughs> um, they use the real blueprints from either the Titanic or its sister ship, which would have been pretty much the exact same to build like the models and a lot of the the set designs, um, obviously like scaling stuff down and things like that. Cameron hired an etiquette coach to help the actors playing the upper class characters. And they did bring to titanic historians on board to also consult on things so again like really wanting to to get as much right as possible which i think is really cool i will say when i was reading up on this cameron gave me kubrick vibes sometimes i will say he doesn't sound nearly as bad as kubrick kubrick was like like known for being the perfectionist and like driving actors to do like a million takes and it sounds like they're definitely like this was a very challenging shoot but I think it's also a super ambitious shoot. So like, I understand why it would be very difficult and challenging. Yeah. But you can do challenging things and not be an asshole. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> very true. And like I said, it was, it was some Kubrick vibes, but not nearly as bad as Kubrick. Let me go ahead and I will go through the AFI stuff. Then I will do awards and nominees, other nominees from that year. And then we can dive in. So... Uh, <laughs> Oh, that was a bad pot on me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that the was best part is you didn't even realize it. <laughs> no, I hate myself. I didn't realize it until Ian started chuckling. God damn it. I loved it. Ugh. 
So AFI, it's number 25 on top thrills, number 37 on top passions. My Heart Will Go On is the number 14 song. Okay, really fast on that. Iconic. It is. And I'm 99% sure that I could be misremembering this. So I think I heard Celine Dion talking about that song. And she had to be basically goaded into recording a demo for it. But going in, she was like, okay, if I do a demo, the demo is going to be the recording. <laughs> and so yeah, she was just resigned to her fate at that point. Because <laughs> she's Celine Dion, so her and demo is, is going to be perfect. Oh, God. Like, oh, my God. Anyway. <laughs> um, well, because th- at the time, Cameron was very adamant that there wouldn't be, like, a sung song in the film. So, like, obviously, they use My Heart Will Go On as, like, the love theme with Jack and Rose. Um, it comes in at all the right points and gets you crying just what it needs to. But the her singing the song was done in the credits, and the um, composers who wrote it ended up persuading Cameron to like include it in the credits, <laughs> which again, iconic. So happy that they did. It has the number one hundred of AFI's top movie quotes with "I'm the King of the World," and then number it was number eighty three in the tenth anniversary top one hundred movies. It wouldn't have been eligible for the original list, which is why it's not on there. And it was the number six in AFI's 10 top 10 for the epics category. I'll take that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not mad at any of those. I'm, I'm down with all of them. I still like, we'll get into it a little bit, like understanding that the characters are young, but it was giving me like Romeo and Juliet vibes with the romance, which I like, I kind of rolled my eyes for the first half, but then I was sold once it hit the iceberg. So I'll, I'll, quietly accept that <laughs> your heart is colder than the north atlantic I and swear. it won't go on it just won't <laughs> <laughs> um awards and nominees so cameron wins for best director fine with that kate winslet nominated for best actress but doesn't win i'm i don't remember who won that year i'm okay with the nomination though i think she does a very good job. Um, I think we'll get into it. There's like a couple line readings that I think are a little flat, but I don't think that's her fault. I think it's a little bit on like some of the writing. Um, but I think she does a great job, especially in the, I was about to say last sequence, but let's, it's really the latter half of the film with like the sinking of the Titanic. So real, really quickly, it was Helen Hunt who won that year for as good as it gets. Ah, uh, Okay. Gloria Stewart nominated for Best Supporting Actress but doesn't win. I do believe this is the first time that you have two people nominated for playing the same character, technically. Oh, yeah, because she was the old... She's old Rose. Old Rose, okay. Yeah, and Gloria Stewart, a, a big golden age actress. I'm like... There again, I feel like sometimes the writing does her a little dirty because she has some of my favorite lines and then also some of my least favorite. 100% agree. Like the frame story to me at times read like much too soapy for the quality of the rest of the film, which I realize that's a very hot take and very denigrating to like the genre of soaps. So, like, but, but it's also, also think- not what I would expect from like a top epic Oscar winning film. So that's just me but i also think the frame story is actually like super important to this film Agreed. So I it's it's a pure yeah. writing issue in my mind so yeah it, we'll get it, into the, it the line like the writing for the individual lines can yeah. be a little hit or miss the overall architecture is great. great it wins for art direction peter lamont and michael ford i mean obviously the art direction's impeccable and so incredibly detailed and then also 
they really, I think, take advantage of it. We'll talk about, again, the sinking sequence. They really take advantage of using all of those little details to drive Mm -hmm. home the horror of the situation. Russell Carpenter wins for cinematography. Also very, very okay with that win. I think that there is some really, really great cinematography. Again, latter half kind of stands out a little bit more to me than the first half. I think that's a little bit of a theme with this is I do think the film as a whole is strong, but I think definitely once we get to the actual sinking, it just ratchets up to like top tier movie making wins for best editing. Again, I'm very okay with that. Um, I actually have quite a few notes on like what a great edit, especially switching back between the story on the Titanic and the frame story of Rose telling everything to the treasure hunters. Let me check really quickly. I have makeup written down, but not if it was a nomination or a win. Just a nomination. Just a nomination. Score, James Horner wins for score. I'm okay with that. Uh, Do you remember where we've heard uh, James Horner before on this podcast? Oh, geez. He's done a lot. Um, Was it in a winner or a special episode? Oh, it was in a winner. I... You know me. Oh, he did Braveheart? Okay. Okay. (laughs) This work is better for sure. It is. I I will say it sounds like James Cameron wanted kind of like a new age Enya-like sound to it, which I think (laughs) is maybe not the vibe I would have gone for. Horner achieves that, but I still wish instead of using what sounded like a very either MIDI artificial edit of real people or just straight up MIDI like choruses really would have enjoyed it if it were like actual actually a choir that had sung it. I think it would have been much less jarring and it's the same sort of critique I had of Vangelis's score for um chariots. Yeah, chariots of fire. It it just didn't for me complement well enough at places. But like the actual meat and potatoes of the writing of the score was great. It's this and this is I fully recognize a me problem. <laughs> no, I so. agree that I I think there could have been a little bit more like depth in like sound wise to the score, but I do think like you said like the meat and potatoes like the the tune, the themes mm-hmm. that they use and that um Horner brings back I think are are really good in kind of like pop at all the right moments. There's some scenes in general where I think like the score is doing a lot to set emotional tone. And also to contrast when the score drops out, there are some Mm -hmm. key places where there is no score that I think are chef's kiss. My heart will go on wins for original song. Of course it wins for best sound and sound effects editing. Both of those I totally get um, in particular. Multiple comments on that in my notes, like outstanding. Absolutely. Great. And then wins for visual effects, which also, again, I think very well earned. They're doing so much. Again, it's the the mix of practical and CGI, which we're, of course, huge fans of. So I'm honestly okay with every single nomination and every single win. Yeah, I I have no notes on that either. It's like very, very well done. Yeah. And again, like I haven't seen everything that was nominated for each of these categories. So like maybe there's one of those that I would watch and be like, oh, actually, I think this should have won instead. But I think for sure everything that was nominated, I'm like, yeah, they did a great job. Okay, last little bit before we go into watch notes. Other nominees from that year, As Good As It Gets, The Full Monty, Goodwill Hunting, and LA Confidential. I do think Goodwill Hunting is the one that I have most often heard people be like, oh, that should have won over Titanic, which like, I've seen that movie. It's good. I like it. Titanic's the one I will watch over and over again. Yeah, I haven't 
Oh, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't seen any of the other winners. Oh, sorry, nominees. I think Goodwill Hunting is the only the only other one I've seen. But given that Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt both won for as good as it gets, I think I'm going to actually have to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I'm go sure for it's that good. One. I'm sure it's good, and I've I've L.A. Confidential and The Full Monty are both movies I've heard of, so I. It seems like it might have been a pretty strong year. I do think Titanic, and we might talk about this more at the end, but I do think it gets some flack because, one, it has a really strong romance plot line that is kind of this, like, pure sweet romance. Like, you know, a little Romeo and juliet and I think people kind of like to shit on Romeo and Juliet in general, which, like, what's your problem? <laughs> um, and then I also think that because it was so incredibly popular... People also, you know, anytime that there's a movie that's incredibly popular, you're always going to get people who just want to hate on it because it was very popular and they want to be cool about not liking the popular movie. Yeah. But isn't to say that there aren't valid critiques of it. Oh, for oh sure. yeah. The writing, as we already mentioned, being one. But I, I do agree on that kind of romance setup because there are, again, I'm, I'm definitely more in the camp of I am willing for the sake of the movie to kind of suspend some of the disbelief around like how quickly things progress but generally speaking that's less my preference when it comes to a romance like movie. right well and it can be poorly done we've definitely critiqued ones in the fast where we were like that mm-hmm. romance did felt so rushed and just not real i think so much of it when you're dealing with that kind of setup relies on the chemistry of the actors and i mm-hmm. think like kate and leo have great chemistry and that's very obvious yeah it's the the core question for me though is whether the arguably infatuation that we see on screen is worth dying for. And I mean, obviously that someone made a decision that it was, but <laughs> well, and I, I will say, and we'll get more into it. I think the movie earns that. Like, I, I think they give you enough of Rose and like set up her situation in a way that like, I think it's believable. Is it still an extreme choice? Yes, but I do think it's believable. Yeah. Well, let's talk about it. <laughs> so we open under the ocean in a tiny little cramped sub of them actually apparently going down. Oh, it actually, were, were they actually in all of these actors in a sub at the bottom of the ocean or did they kind of combine those scenes? Do you know? So I, from my light reading, I wasn't able to fully pinpoint. Um, Cameron did go down. Mm-hmm in the subs to do the filming. I imagine with the actors, they probably weren't, I don't think they were necessarily underwater filming that, but I don't know, maybe with that first bit they were. Anyway, they're down there (laughs) doing an expedition. All the footage (laughs) of like the ghostly Titanic, which can we talk about the freaking shot of the bow of the Titanic at the bottom of the ocean floor coming into view. Like what a tone, what a vibe it is ghostly. It is haunting. It is everything it should be. Yeah. But at the same time has this impressive quality to it and this looming quality to it that just heightens the ghostly ship at the bottom of the ocean. And to their credit, like the entire set of scenes that they filmed down there continued to amplify this sort of mystery around the ship, which I loved. And even when they go in and are are about to flip over a headboard or a door or whatever it was on top of the safe they find, it's like 
the suspense that you build with the 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 visuals of this just yeah. spectacular there the one thing that i will say is i i think there was often a lot of focus on kind of the technical side of things which i'm debating whether I was off put by that because I'm watching it so far after the fact. And I fully recognize that the Titanic was much more kind of in the the pop culture eye at this point because of the series of expeditions that were happening in the 90s. So could have very well hit differently in 97 than it would have now. But I'm like, oh my God, the interesting part is the footage and the mystery and the story. Don't talk to me about give me my hands. And then you have these crazy like animatronic controllers. Like that felt extraneous to me. Well, I think that's partially the point, especially of having the frame story is right. Like these people, and I'm going to call them treasure hunters because that's what they are. They're not really archaeologists. Like they're doing it to find the heart of the ocean necklace and to like get a big payday from this. They're investors who have them looking for it. But like, you know, that's what they're focused on. They're focused on the the tech and the finding that one thing and everything. And they're not connected to like the human story of mm -hmm. the Titanic until. Rose tells them her story and that's what really brings it to life and kind of builds that emotional connection for them. So I think, I think it's done a little bit purposefully there. I do find it interesting, but I agree. Like I, the footage is what like really gets you like going through the door, which yeah. they later use to do a little flash where you see somebody opening the door for Rose to go through and you recognize the bits and pieces that we see in that footage later in the film in the flashback and it again it sets the whole tone and it always makes sure that there is the looming specter of the inevitable disaster throughout the film mm -hmm. like you never forget that that is coming because we see where it's all going to end up so like it makes it means that rose and jack's story is on a clock and we never forget it mm -hmm. So they find the drawing, as you mentioned. I did love the reaction of the lead submariner, expedition leader, whatever you want to call him, when they open the muddy safe and find nothing but this drawing. Yeah. <laughs> and I will say, when they do transport, you know, the hundred-year-old Rose to the ship and she comes off with all of this luggage and a dog and a goldfisher three, it's that was just gold cements her as who she is in many ways yeah well and of course yeah recognizing that the woman in the photo is wearing the pendant and then of course you have them doing the like press conference to say like oh yeah we found this and like they show the drawing and you have you know 100 year old rose recognizing the drawing and then calling them mm -hmm. and being like did you find the heart of the ocean? <laughs> and then they fly her out. But yeah, I agree. I love her landing with all her luggage. There is a moment that I want to call out because it comes back at the end in like my favorite way. And it's when she's unpacking and her granddaughter, um, who's her caretaker is helping her. And she, they're putting up all these little photo frames and she goes, I always like, I, you know, I have to travel with my pictures. I need to, I like, I love to always have them with me. And I feel like at that moment, you assume that they're like family photos mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, it's also obvious that like, you know, again, her granddaughter's with her and everything that like Rose got married. Her last name is Calvert now. But we'll come back to those photos because we don't see them initially and we see them later. And it's like just a fantastic reveal. Mm -hmm. 
so good. And the way they also played with Rose's memory around her physical possessions was, I think, another like rehumanizing of the the artifacts that they had glossed over earlier as you get the light of the drone sub mm-hmm. like sliding over some glasses and like a porcelain doll face. And it's like, okay, these are the vestiges of the people that were on the ship. Which like gives me chills because like that is why I love like history and archaeology mm-hmm. and I'm like such a nerd about that is because I'm like, those are people's stories and stuff and like, oh, so that's another, re- like I'm just gonna, up front, I'm a huge fan of this film. So like I might have a little bit of a hard time being <laughs> as critical because like it just, it hits on so many reasons why I like, love history and stuff like that. Um, well, don't worry. I will give you plenty of opportunity to uh, go up against me being much more cantankerous in this first part. <laughs> Good. I'm going to change your mind. I'm going to make we'll you see. believe in true love at you. <laughs> so um, she begins to tell her frame story, and I loved the transition back in the day to this the ship. This is my favorite bit of the flashback. This is like maybe my favorite little exchange in the movie and this is again like we were saying especially with older rose some of her writing can be very like unbalanced as far as quality Mm -hmm. but the bit where she says and of course everyone will recognize this from the memes but the you know they ask her to tell her story she says it's been 84 years oh i had forgotten that that was turned into a gif (laughs) it's a big one uh bill paxton interrupts her but like because of the meme, you forget how good it is because the Bill Paxton interrupts her is like, oh, if you can just tell us anything that you remember. And she's like, do you want to hear the story or not? It's been 84 years and I still can smell the fresh paint. And then it transitions back to like the day of the launch. And I just I love that transition. And I also love that we immediately are getting some rose sass. And also like the idea of like you don't live through something like that and it not stay with you like this is a defining moment in a person's life that we're gonna watch it's like what unsinkable molly slash maggie slash margaret brown said in the the boat you don't see that every day i'm like (laughs) understatement of the movie Um, you do not but the way they introduce young rose is glorious you have them pull up in these gilded cars she steps out under the hat and all of a sudden you kind of looks up as the camera pans down and the level of unimpressed is impressive (laughs) she's like oh it's just a ship and is arguing with cal her fiance about like whether it's impressive or not and she's just like so what <laughs> I think I think when we're initially introduced to Rose when we already like old Rose so I think that helps but young Rose when you're first introduced to her comes off like a little stuffy mm-hmm. and everything but of course as you get to know her you understand why because you start to understand how bad her situation is mm-hmm. even though on the surface it's all like beautiful and gilded and like nice yeah and they really do hammer home her her privilege in that sense with how they get to board, how their luggage is handled, all of that in contrast to everyone else boarding the ship and going through health checks and all of this stuff, which, you know, really did happen. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of like class commentary in this. And we kind of went back and forth before we started recording on like, is it too heavy handed and all? And I kind of land on the side of it isn't because I, it's all accurate. Like the differences we're seeing are accurate, I think. Yeah. And I mean... I think it is on the edge of 
heavy handed. And the only reason I say that is there's so much that is just inherently shown through the way the different characters move through the ship and interact with each other and exercise or are subject to someone's power. Like it, it felt like all of that was there without having to be so heavy with it. But that's a preference thing for me. I'm like, I would much rather you use what's kind of implicit there. Well, I think they, I think they do. And I think it's, it's, I mean, it's definitely highlighted because we're watching the love story between two people of different class. Like, mm-hmm. Jack is third class, Rose is first. So we're like seeing where those worlds intersect and Mm -hmm. butt heads and don't work. So I think that definitely like just the nature of the story that they're telling is going to highlight that. But like, again, like those are the everyday realities that were being shown. Well, and we immediately see it with Jack and how he's literally winning his tickets in a poker game. And then if having to run literally to the ship, I'm like, okay, five minutes, you wouldn't have made it in five minutes, but can we talk about how (laughs) the Norwegian guy who bets their tickets fucking saved him and his friend's life. I, that is, I'm sure that the one that got beat up was really disappointed in the moment, but so happy afterwards. I bet like a couple (laughs) weeks later, he's like looking at his friend being like, I fucking told you such vindication. That punch. Yeah. I bet he's very vindicated. But yeah, this the scale of the ship and honestly the effects when they actually launch and the music, it's like very exciting. I love how you get wrapped up into that. Apparently, and this is like the level of detail that they were going for. So when they built the model of the ship, they really only build the starboard side out mm-hmm. because that's where they're gonna be shooting the like sinking from and everything. But when the Titanic launched from I think it was Southampton, it was docked on the port side. I mean, it is called the port side. <laughs> oh my God. So they basically shot everything and had like reversed costumes and like reversed choreography and everything and then flip the image in post. I love that it was cheaper to do that than build the full yeah. side of the ship. That I, is movie great. Movie magic, man. I love it. I love stuff like that. I think it's so fun and so cool. See, I don't think it's magic. I think it's just practicality. <laughs> it's what? It's magic, Ian. It's magical. Okay. Open your heart to whimsy. It, my heart won't go on. That's the theme of this for me. Um, <laughs> Ian's heart will not go on. Not under these conditions. So I, I do want to, we don't need to talk about it a lot, but I do want to highlight the kind of excitement and the scale that they build with all of the different scenes during launch with like getting the boat going finally, as I think the captain said it, let's stretch her legs and you get to see kind of the engine room and the flurry of activity with the crew really hammering home the excitement of all of this and the optimism of everybody involved made all the more heightened i know i've said that like three times tragic Bear ironic. with me uh, uh with us knowing that it is doomed also i just want to point out the score i think does a lot of heavy lifting during the departure sequence i think it, it swells kind of at mm-hmm. the right moments and it really kind of like help you're also excited as an audience for these people but you have that like nagging bit of doom at the back of your mind Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> so th- throughout that sequence, too, we we get to have a few characters introduced. We come to hear about Unsinkable Molly Brown, um, played by the always amazing Kathy Bates. I love her I in love this role. I love her in this. 
Yeah, it's perfect casting. Definitely some digs at her for being new money versus kind of the old money cohort that's on the ship. We get to see the contrast between Cal and Rose as she's getting settled and has these you know, Picasso and um, Monet paintings that he does not understand at all and is a dick about because he's an asshole. Yeah, it, we're starting to get glimpses of like him being an ass, but like it gets so much worse, um, which again, I think the, is done on purpose because I think he, he and Rose's mom have to be horrible so that when Rose jumps out of a lifeboat later to go back to Jack, it you're like, okay, yeah, like I... I see why she would feel that that is her only option, her only recourse. Yeah. Okay. I will say, I wish that she had just not gotten on the lifeboat because someone else could have taken that spot to own your truth, but don't be selfish. (laughs) But it's narratively more satisfying. But yes, I I agree. Anyway, I'm uh, sorry. I I have to nitpick. (laughs) I have to be a curmudgeon. But we're, we're also getting voiceover that's kind of setting up Rose's internal crisis. There's the line that I love where it's, she says at one point, she's like, inside, I was screaming. And then you have mm-hmm. the whistle go off, which I think is so good. That's like during the the launch. I also have a note that I'm like, the idea of decorating your vacation room is ludicrous to me. Because <laughs> she wants all the paintings out. She's like, let's get a little color in here. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Hey, I... Gilded, was that the Gilded Age? Anyway, (laughs) the unfathomable amounts of money. Yeah. So we do get some of the social interaction within the first class with Rose to hammer home kind of that point that you made around how she is oppressively within a system that just is not working for her. Some really snide comments from Cal, like it. Well, and we're getting like the amount of like, the lack of control she has over her own life and the amount of control that other people have. Like, I do love her comment to, I think it's Mr. Ismay. It's the guy who's like one of the partners in the white star line Mm -hmm. when they're at dinner about, uh, have you read the most recent stuff by Freud? Uh, I think his theories and like men's preoccupation with size would interest you when they're talking about how big like the ship's the biggest ship ever built. But then you do have the comment where Cal is like, or I think Molly says something to Cal where she's like, oh, she's a firecracker. Do you think you can handle her? Kind of like seeing that she likes Rose and likes that fire. And then Cal's responsive, I'll just have to control what she reads or something like that. We're getting the hints that like Rose has no control over her own life and she is in this very oppressive system with a lot of rules and a lot of rules that are designed to keep her in her Mm quote-unquote place and you you do get kathy bates in the reactions to this like acting as us in that scene there is a small part of me that is like okay that felt like a little you included that character because she was a historical character, not because she necessarily adds, but I will say in small ways, she does kind of represent our, as the audience's views around what's going on on screen. And it's nice to see that reflected. Yeah. Well, and I think she also serves to highlight the flaws in the society around Rose. Like there's the scene later of like Rose's mother and like the other, you know, old money women who Mm kind of try and get rid of her at tea and this idea that like she is also a, an outsider. And then also the irony of like Rose's mom looking down on her so much when we later find out that they're broke because like Rose's father spent all their money and then died and left them broke. And that that's why she, and that this woman is like forcing her 17 year old daughter to marry this monster 
because she doesn't want to have to become a seamstress. Can you imagine, Ian? So with all of this, though, Rose does in the small way that she can stand up for herself by leaving the table after that beautiful Freud dig that you mentioned. Um, and yeah. this is where we get the first, it, I would, it's not a meet cute, but it is definitely a love at first sight thing for Jack or infatuation at first. I don't know. Anyway, he's sketching and all of a sudden sees her exasperated on the deck above. In a beautiful dress. And Kate Winslet's like freaking gorgeous. So I get it. And they do because she she has like red hair in this, um, as does her mother. But like it does very much set her apart mm-hmm. from crowds because there are tons of extras in this film. This Again, the scale is so impressive. But I, I would like to point out, too, that they do that with Unsinkable Molly. She is always the darkest dressed person in the scene. Which I I, yeah. I don't know enough to understand whether that would have been either out of fashion or like on the cutting edge of fashion. I'm guessing probably the latter, just given how they're trying to characterize her as being, you know, new money and flashy and everything that the old money folks on the ship despise, even though there's no inherent badness with it. Yeah, no, they, yeah, I, again, costuming just, uh, chef's kiss in this. It's spectacular. So ultimately, all of this leads to Rose having an exceedingly oppressive dinner and running feverishly to the back of the ship. Yeah, it's like she I mean, she's having a panic attack straight up. And I I loved the way that they shot that. It's so chaotic while being extremely dynamic for her. And she is killing it with this performance Mm -hmm. um, till she reaches the back and is faced with. The pelle de vide, as it were, of like throwing herself literally into the ocean. Yeah. And th- this is where Jack sees her running by at one point and kind of follows her back there. She climbs over the railing and is kind of like looking down at the water. And he makes that overture. And I, I like, I think, I think Leonardo DiCaprio plays it so well of like keeping his voice kind of upbeat and casual and everything, but you can tell that Jack like genuinely is worried. And there is the moment I, I, I don't know if it's after he gets her back over the rail, but I think it's when she's standing there where she's like, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking poor little rich girl. I love his response of no, what I'm thinking is what could have happened to this person to make them think this is their only way out. Mm-hmm. I think that is like really the first time that Rose, one, has been able to give voice to her situation to somebody, and two, has felt empathy from another person. And I think that's where you get like that first connection. And then, of course, you have the, if, if you jump, I'm going to have to go in after you. And Jack like taking off his shoes and his jacket and kind of being like, you know, I'm in this too now, which of course they bring back all of those mm-hmm. lines at the end and your heart just breaks. But I think, I think it's a well-acted scene by both of them. And actually like a good example of, of where the writing in the minutia of the actual words was good. So it's like, you know, with all due respect, miss, I'm not the one hanging off the back of a ship. Great. Yeah. He calls her an indoor girl. Like all of this stuff is is actually good in the moment. So that that's really frustrating to me that you have these moments of of the writing being great, contrasted with some really clunky, 
clunky lines that we get the day after. Yeah, agreed. Um, it's it's definitely a little inconsistent in that first half, but I I do think here's where like and yes, we're very like Romeo and Juliet and everything, and there's a lot of like heightened emotions with everything going on with them. Although I do think it's very important to highlight that Rose's situation is gen- genuinely bad. Mm-hmm. Like she is genuinely staring down the barrel of a very miserable, potentially dangerous life. Yeah, it is very much a gilded cage situation for sure. So I I do think it is a good like sparking connection. And then you also have the bit where he's helping her back over the rail where she slips and he's hanging on to her and saying like, I won't let go. And, you know, she screams for help. People rush to help them and he pulls her over. So he does genuinely save her life. Yeah. And of course, it's misread at first because of, again, the class dynamics at play. She takes like a smidge too long to get him off the hook, but I'm glad that she does. Agreed. I think she's in shock, but you know, you do have Cal, of course, boistering because Cal's not concerned for Rose. He's mad that somebody would have put their hands on his fiance. So we're already seeing that like Rose is an accessory to him. Mm -hmm. She's not a person. And we see that repeatedly. $20. $20, which granted more back in the day, but like, but it's your fiance, a hundred dollars and you are a rich as fuck. Like, come on. Anyway, he, he like continues with this kind of transactional nature when they're back in their stateroom and he gives her the heart of the ocean diamond. Like it, it's very clear his view of this relationship is highly transactional. He can buy her affection. He expects in not so veiled terms the carnal side of marriage from her. <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's there's a lovely moment in that I think Billy Zane plays Cal. He just goes for it as far as like the level of despicableness of this character, which again, I think it is important for this character to be so despicable. There's the moment where she's in the mirror and she's like brushing her hair and she's got the music box playing. He comes over and just shuts the music box and pushes it aside and is like, here is this big diamond necklace. And it's like, he's not, he doesn't care about the things that actually bring her comfort. He doesn't really Mm -hmm. care about her. Again, she's an accessory and he sees the world in terms of money and material possessions. And again, she is a thing that he can buy. So frustrating that that's not the case to him, at least he's frustrated by it, but yeah. And it, it really, as we, as we will see, like the fact that he can't, seemingly by her affection and like can't control her becomes like a bigger and bigger problem for him like Mm -hmm. she is the thing that for someone who's probably been been able to buy anything he's ever wanted and whose money has probably you know maybe not actually bought him people's good graces and good opinions but seemingly has and that this person won't drives him insane Mm mm-hmm we also have Lovejoy, his butler, who's like kind of introduced in all of this, who is a scumbag. And I'm almost like, is Lovejoy even worse? Because you work for the bad guy. Like, you know, you work for this asshole and seem to enjoy it. He's way more dark personality than Cal is, in my opinion, because he appears to take glee in his role, yeah. whereas Cal is much more practical. He's too again, transactional to like take enjoyment in it. It's more like that's just the way things are. Whereas there's an emotion behind it for his man. Yeah. It's like you get the feeling that Lovejoy really enjoys like working for Cal and putting on the pressure. Yeah. It's he's a very sinister character and played like pretty low key. 
but like very effectively sinister. Yeah. Good job, David Warner. Good job. job. (laughs) So Jack and Rose are hanging out the next day, of course, because she's like very grateful for not only saving her, but his discretion he essentially covered for her trying to jump off the ship and was like, oh, I just slipped. And he just went with it as, you know, yeah. anyone should in that moment. <laughs> yeah. And well, and I think there's also like, it's clear that she, like there's some awkwardness at first, but it's also clear that she really enjoys hanging out with Jack because it's like a reprieve from this very restrained life that mm-hmm. she has to live. I do think I was thinking back on it and I think in general, Jack's character isn't nearly as well-developed as Rose, partially which makes sense because we are here. This is her story. We're hearing it from her point of view. And there is an element of, you know how you have the stereotype of the manic pixie dream girl? Yeah. Jack's got a little manic pixie dream guy. Very much feels like a hero in a romance novel, um, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes. But I think part of that is because Jack is a person to Rose, but I think he's also a symbol of this, of like freedom and like this life that she has romanticized outside of her own. Mm -hmm. I think it definitely like goes beyond that too, but I think there is an element of like symbolism and romanticization around him that she has. Yeah. I will say overall, my least favorite of their interactions is the kind of early part of the day where they're interacting. They have this kind of like not so witty derisive repartee that they go through about like, oh, you're so rude, all this stuff that I, for whatever reason, whether it was the writing or the delivery just didn't feel, it felt very stilted to me. And even like getting into going through the drawings felt stilted. Once we got to him, that moment was great. And talking through kind of his experience and the way that he actually is well-traveled and has been, been able to find his way around and the little things around like him living authentically, like, oh no, you can call me poor. Even though she was trying to be very gracious about how she did so. That part was great. When we have him connecting with her over art, and then we also see that like Jack is a very empathetic person and he really cares about people in their stories. Like mm-hmm. as they're going through the book, like, you know, there's a lot of like new drawings of women and stuff, but there's, and, but he like has stories for them. Like he knows who these people are. And then there's like the woman who he's like, yeah, she would dress up in her jewelry and like all of her finest stuff every night and go to this cafe and like wait for her lover to come back. So like, I rolled my eyes at that. <laughs> Whatever. My heart will go is, on. It's, 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 I, the, did your heart ever go on? <laughs> the, way that they added that in i did appreciate it narratively but i still rolled my eyes at the unbridled romanticism i guess it is a romance so i should calm down but i won't but also you know well it's also (laughs) the the idea of like you know romanticism in like the idea of like you know the romantic movement like you really are you know the story of people and emotion becomes like really important in contrast to previous um movements what am i thinking of what was the movement before the romantic period that it was in response to? I'm Googling it right now. Give me a minute. Um, okay, so romanticism. Neoclassicism. Neoclassicism. Okay. Which went back to like kind of like the, oh, we are very logical people and like you should take the emotion out of it and stuff. So anyway, but I think like Jack's like very like romantic nature and like romanticization of people and their stories i think it very much matches with rose and that's something that she is missing with like the people in her circle Mm -hmm. 
That's what I was trying to get at. <laughs> no, I, I, I completely agree with that read of, of that situation. I, I do appreciate, again, narratively how they're setting that up. Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. It's great. The drawings, I would not call spectacular, but it's fine. I'm, I'm now you, being an asshole. Could you do asshole. them, Ian? Could you do hey, them? Uh, your could, could I make this movie? No, but I have the audacity to critique it. So, um, <laughs> so true. That's so true. Could we have made any of the movies that we've covered? No. Um, we do get this beautifully shot, beautifully... I'm going to call it color adjusted. There is no way that sunset was that golden, but I loved it. It was gorgeous. <laughs> um, again, the cinematography piece is great there. Slash effects. It all works together. It all works together. It's a soup of creativity. But we get the comical relief of like the spitting. <laughs> yes, I love the spitting scene, especially because it comes back. Again, I this movie does a really good job of like, especially with the milestones of the relationship development with Jack and Rose and bringing all of those pieces back at the end in like super satisfying ways. But yeah, so you have like the spitting scene where he's teaching her how to spit. What else do we have in this scene? We, it's basically just their relationship. Yeah, they're talking. The specifics are less important. So yeah, during this point, we do sometimes cut back to our frame story a little bit. And there are some like really beautiful transitions where we do that, where like you might be holding on like like them on the bow of the ship, which is the, you know, the iconic shot from the movie and then transitioning that into the ghostly bow under the the water and pulling out from one of the monitors on the ship. But I do love every time we cut back to the frame story, more people have gathered around to listen to Rose's story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, that is good. It's like, it is engaging and they show it. Yeah. And the idea that these people who are so concerned about finding the necklace and like all of the technology and stuff are now wrapped in like the story of the Titanic. Mm-hmm. So interrupting that spitting instruction, we have the ladies coming from tea. We we kind of mentioned this earlier, but they finally do show up. And of course, Rose's mom catches her as she hawks a big loogie over the side of the ship and is <laughs> shocked, I tell you, like could have keeled over from a heart attack. Um, but that that's so important to, again, contextualize the relationship or a- adversaryship between her mother and Jack. Now, this is where I, I think the decision to use voiceover at parts didn't need to happen. And I would have honestly preferred that it had been just straight because to her credit, uh, Francis Fisher, uh, Rose's mother that did an outstanding performance at really showing the disgust at uh, behind seeing her daughter be influenced as such and the, like the pearl clutch. So like her performance was all that was needed to carry that. Oh, it's great. Well, and then also you understand later because there's the scene where she's helping Rose with her corset and that's where you have the reveal that they're broke and that she has put everything on Rose to fix a problem not of Rose's creation and that she is putting pressure on her 17-year-old daughter to fix the situation and that she doesn't care how and that she will happily pressure her to marry this absolute monster in order to do it. And so you start to see like those interactions where she sees Rose hanging out with Jack. It's not just disgust, but also this fear and worry of like, this could disrupt the plan. Jack is an existential threat to the family name. Well, not only the family name, but her way of life. 
Yeah, because as she puts it so eloquently, like that's a really positive word here, but like it was very plain. Like all they have now is the name of their family, which I I just think makes it all the more insidious how she is socially, well, attempting to socially isolate, you know, unsinkable Molly. Oh, agreed. It's, yeah, the the irony of like you put yourself so above for all of these arbitrary reasons and then Mm -hmm. you actually don't even fit the bill. But it also fits that like if she's been raised in this world that is very exclusive and isolating to outsiders, her fear at becoming the outsider, it's very real. Like I think the mother's horrible, but I also think that like she's very real in her motivations. Mm -hmm. I think both she and Cal are like great villains. And again, I think it's important that like we dislike them so much that we are fully supportive of Rose in the decisions that she makes. Yeah. So in this as well, uh, Unsinkable Molly helps Coach Jack a little bit, gets him a tux. Because uh, Cal invites him to have dinner with them as mm-hmm. like acting like it's a thank you for saving his fiance, but really he's like, oh, this will be hilarious. Opportunity for more digs, which he does get in in spades. I love though, the whole sequence I love, when we have the the meeting on the staircase, with Rose and Jack, with Rose coming down the staircase, you have Jack in the tux. Mm-hmm. I love the way Jack is observing and like kind of low-key mimicking the behaviors he's seeing with other yeah. people. I think it, one, shows off his intelligence, and two, also like he knows he doesn't belong, but he's very clearly like very socially adept. Attempting to play the part, for sure. Playing the part, but also being true to himself, because there is people asking him questions at the table and he's very honest in his answers. Like he's playing the part, but also not pretending to be more than he is or one of them. Like he's projecting a confidence that he may or may not feel. But I, I love that he stays very true to himself in those scenes. And all of the little digs from Cal notwithstanding, like it is some next level commentary on, again, the almost fascination that, the first class passengers at that table have with what is arguably like a gentleman hobo lifestyle. Like he embodies these arguably very American 19th century ideals of like freedom and self-determination and all of these things that, you know, those the folks at the table would argue that they do too. But we know, observing from the outside, given all of the commentary around like inheriting a rail fortune and all of that stuff, that it's like, no, you won the birth lottery. <laughs> yeah. Well, and again, like, you know, they're the society that they have both been born into and are helping to uphold is like so rigid. And we see that with the amazing contrast between the upper class party. And the party in steerage, mm-hmm. which seems a hell of a lot more fun because Rose, uh, Jack gives Rose the note. They go down to the steerage party. There is great music. People are dancing. They're having a fun time. Everyone is like enjoying themselves, talking to everybody. Like they're, there's not the same clickishness that we see with the upper class. And then there's in the middle of that party. I just love the like quick cut back to the men with the brandy and the cigars being like, Oh yes. And like the Supreme court Rockefeller's talking to them, but they'll never like, that seems like the most boring party. 
yeah, I, I, I get what they were going for there, but like I legit would rather talk geopolitics than dance on a table. So I'm that's just fully my honest. preference. I was watching that. I was watching that scene and I was like, Ian's going to argue for the cigars and brandy. Uh, absolutely. Like, are you kidding? I mean, minus cool. the cigars. I don't need a cigar, but cool. I'll go dance on a table with the hot guy. You can have your brandy and cigars with like fucking Cal and his crew. <laughs> In this limited context, I will take it. <laughs> so um, during this kind of middle portion as well, we, we do get instances where Cal is truly exerting his power to keep Jack apart. So like when they're in church and Jack tries to come and say hi, which I'm like, are you really about to interrupt a church service for this? Like, come on. I was like, Jack, that's that's bad move. Bad move. But still, the fact that it is so easy to, you know, tip the stewards and they now are acting as the de facto police on board to remove him from this situation that is found offensive by the first class passengers, mainly Cal and uh, again, his manservant. Lovejoy. What a ironic name. For it really Lovejoy. is. More like Killjoy, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> So that it's it's just again we get all of that information around the true depth of Rose's situation which is great. Well we and we also have the explosion he has at breakfast about her having been at that party instead of having sex with oh, him because he was like I thought you'd come to me last night cuz like I gave you a pretty necklace instead you were partying in steerage and he like throws the table and that is I think the moment where Rose is fully like I can't like I can't mm-hmm. like she she just got a glimpse of her future and it is fucking bleak very and when she's at tea and sees the next generation being brought up the same it's Ugh. the uh, just that cycle and you can see it you can see the gears turning and of course she runs to Jack on the bow of the ship and we get yeah. I'm flying yeah well that's a little out of order I think that's where she like fully, fully makes her decision. And then I think the next big scene we should talk about is the draw me like your French girls. Another iconic line. Um, her robe is fabulous. It is fabulous. And I loved the kind of montage of preparations. So kind of shooting within this scene and seeing all the little pieces that are falling into place, like moving the couch and getting the chair set. And it's all very mechanical and very professional. But there's also like the little bit of awkwardness yes. between the two of them. I was reading that that's like one of, if not the first thing that they shot because they were still waiting for like the big Titanic set to be constructed. So that like, I, that's why the scene like there reads like an awkwardness is because like, obviously like people didn't know each other as much yet. Um, but it, it, I think it reads nicely in the film. I think like on the whole Sort of for me. I think the night and day change in the way that Rose interacts with Jack to me was a little jarring. See, I saw it as like she's putting on this false confidence because she's in a really vulnerable position. Oh, see, I didn't read it as false. It felt like this was like the new Rose that we were going to be be leaning into. I mean, I think that's also a piece of it is like this is, I think, a symbolism of her like posing nude being her like getting rid of the constraints whereas mm-hmm. like you know the corset was her mom like pulling the constraints back on her and like re-caging her kind of like her not wearing the constricting clothing and like uh you know posing for the work of art that like she really wants to and everything mm-hmm. i think it's her like 
taking ownership of herself and like making the choice. But I do think that there is that element of her where she's like kind of making the jokes of also like, I hated that so much. I thought I thought it cheapened the scene like so 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 much. I I read that as her like yeah she's taking this step into new rose, but like it's still like it's still new and that there is like some some awkwardness there and she's like kind of putting up a little bit of like a false front to like make it till you make it a little bit with that. I see your reading and I think the reason that I don't personally read it that way is that like if if i'm in an awkward situation like that i do the i turn inward like i'm not going to be the one cracking jokes i'm not going to be filling the air i'm just going to sit in the silence and be like you can't see the face i'm making but it's just like (laughs) see that's but see that's what i do too if i'm like going into a situation where it's like there's a little bit of anxiety or something like that then like i'm like okay you're going to be this person. Like, it's like, you know, like starting a new job or something, which can be like nerve wracking or something when you're like meeting new coworkers and everything I go in there being like, you are going to be positive, bubbly person, even if you're anxious, like you will, if you act like you're at ease, you will feel more at ease. So I, that's, that's why we read it too differently is we both read it according to our tactics for awkward social interactions. So true. I accept your reading. I accept your reading. I'm not sure I agree, but that's okay. (laughs) Same, same. I don't agree with you, but I accept your reading and I accept you. Oh, I accept you too. (laughs) So that scene ends. They're putting things away. All of a sudden, Cal is like, I need to know where my wife is. And of course, Mr. Lovejoy comes to check on them and they barely escape. And this scene was like unbridled joy. I enjoyed this quite a bit. Yeah, watching them run for love from Lovejoy is great. It's amazing. And this is really where my opinion on their kind of romance changed because we got past what I personally view as like a very thin start into something where it's like, okay, we're in this together. And of course, we're in the pressure cooker of the sinking of the ship very shortly. So yeah, love the second portion of the film. Because we, we did set up kind of before we got into this segment where... I think it, it's with them on the bow of the ship where sh- uh, we cut back to older Rose and she's like, that's the last time the Titanic saw the sun. Mm-hmm. So we know we're night of and that like it is kind of so tragic that we really hit the stride. You know, we fully hit the stride of their relationship the night that it's doomed to end. Oh, yeah. But I, I do think even for some of the clunkiness and awkwardness of the beginning of their relationship, I don't mind it because I do feel like it grows to a place that I really like. Again, I think Kate and Leo's chemistry is great. Mm-hmm. And I think that definitely, definitely helps. But I also do feel that the movie does earn it. By the very end, absolutely. Like we're talking, she's blowing the whistle on the door slash headboard slash piece of wood. Like by that point, I was totally in. Ian, you cold-hearted bastard. Well, it took it took the crisis to like really hammer it home. <laughs> I accept you, but I don't like you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding, just kidding. Again, the chase through the boilers and the cargo hold, and then the way that they kind of play around in the the car and play around in the car and nudge, nudge, wink, wink. (laughs) The iconic shot of the 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 hand. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) I love how the people chasing them see that and they're like, hey, look, and of course it's empty. We're we're surprised. Yeah, I love love that moment where you're like, oh, they're going to get found and then they open the car Mm -hmm. and it's... Yeah, because Cal has them searching the whole ship for her. Because he can't just, like, fucking chill. Uh, he, 
Well, he's got to exert control. And I mean, she put it really well when she was like, I'm not some foreman in your factory that you can command. Like, another really great line. Yeah. Well, and again, once, you know, he sees her as his possession, he doesn't like the idea of somebody else putting their hands on his possessions. When he and Lovejoy have already, they've found the drawings in the safe, I think, at this point, too. And Cal's kind of cooking up the scheme to frame Jack. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I view as act one, as it were, because we are now presented with a wonderfully suspenseful sequence that is the actual iceberg strike. Yeah, because all of those barriers and shit that people were throwing up between Jack and Rose, none of them are about to matter. Because we have the lookouts that, of course, see this iceberg and... I, it's too late. It's interesting because we know that it's too late, but I still felt kind of that suspense because mm-hmm. it's like you, it sets off the frantic phone call to the bridge, the frantic moving of the the ship's uh, wheel to try and turn full stop on the engines with the cuts to the actual boiler and engine rooms, like to make it stop. Like you can see them literally trying to turn this gigantic ship to avoid disaster. And ultimately can't avoid it. And we care. Like, we care that it's going to happen because we so want Jack and Rose to be okay. And so I feel like that's part of what the tension happens. I do. I have respect for movies that I know are going to end in tragedy, but that still make me fall in love with the characters. Mm -hmm. Because if I know something's going to end in tragedy, I'm just like, don't get attached. And then I inevitably do. And I end up bawling my eyes out. I do think they also did a really nice job of sprinkling throughout all of the factors that are going to lead up to this disaster. Mm-hmm. We have the bit where Rose and her mom are and Cal are on the tour with uh, Mr. Andrews, who designed the ship, who I love. I think uh, Victor Garber does a fantastic job with him. I love that character so much. Like, again, that's one of the like few people who are like genuinely very kind and complimentary to mm-hmm. Rose, where she kind of says the bit of like, I did the math and there don't seem to be enough lifeboats. And he's like, oh, you're very observant. Like, also, you're correct. Like, I wanted there to be, but people thought it made the decks look too cluttered, which is real. That's why there wasn't enough lifeboats. And at the time, there were no regulations that said you have to have enough lifeboats for every passenger. Obviously, after the Titanic, (laughs) that changes. Yeah. Well, and I mean, too, with all of the like technology at the time, they were like, oh, well, it's really it's there just to like get people onto the rescue ship. Because the boat's yeah. not going to sink. We just have to ferry them. We don't need... We can, like, run back, so... I just... The hubris of it, because everyone is so convinced the ship is unsinkable. And you know, Cal said it at the very beginning, even God himself cannot sink that ship. And I'm like, ooh, oh, Cal, ooh. my dude. I just... I don't care. I don't care what your stance is on religion. Just don't tempt with stuff like that, you know? <laughs> you know, it costs you nothing to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Beautifully said, Ian. It costs you nothing to shut up. (laughs) But we have that. We have them talking about how, like, the waters are so calm. And someone's like, that's going to make it harder to see the icebergs. And then all of a sudden, oh, we haven't seen the binoculars for the lookouts in Southampton. Like, all of the little things conspiring. You have, uh, I think it's Ismay again, pushing them to go faster. 
when the captain's like, you know, we're making good time. And he's like, but you're not using the last of the engines because that was one thing that people pointed out could have been like a big factor was the fact that they, in the sinking was that Mm -hmm. they were going too fast given all the icebergs around. And that after they hit the iceberg, Ismay also pressured them to keep going. And that if they had stopped, it would have sunk more slowly and therefore more people might have survived. I I do honestly take a little bit of issue with the characterization of Captain Smith in this because like that character of Ismay, I I don't, my understanding is like that was not the reason for some of these things like speed. Like apparently at the time, ice was not like it was a threat, but there had been like head on collisions where the ships were fine and ultimately completed their journeys. So like the looming threat of like an ice warming warning was considered more of an advisory as opposed to something that you needed to like action on and adjust because the white star line just, you know, operated on a very strict time schedule and that was fine for it. But until it's not, it is like perfect storm, right? Cause like, and again, we're getting all of the little, you know, hence you have Andrews talking about some of the construction. There's, um, I think it's Bodine on the like current, you know, quote unquote current day part where he explains what happens with the way it sinks in a way that is extremely clinical to the person who was on it. And I was like, sir, she lived through this. Mm, <laughs> Maybe oh yeah. Be a little bit more careful. But, um, you know, I'd read stuff that said like, if they hadn't tried to turn, the ship probably would have been fine because mm-hmm. of the head on collision. And it's like it just the perfect storm builds up to create this catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And I think the the structure of the movie does such a good job of like dropping us the breadcrumbs of like what all of the perfect storm is and how it happens too. And I I'm really torn on that because it, at times I felt that the breadcrumbs kind of pulled away from our our main interest in Jack and Rose. And given that we know it's doomed, I'm kind of like, it's already inevitable. Do we need a cause other than it happened? (laughs) It didn't bother me. I actually really liked it because for me, it stayed as like this constant reminder that like we are on a clock. Mm. And I felt like it kind of like helped with the pacing and moving the story forward. And then also once again, just like. I so want Jack and Rose to be able to get off the ship and like have a great life. Like I want them to get a happily ever after. And then just like the reminder that that's probably not going to happen or, or like there's a good chance it won't happen. Cause I keep talking about like knowing it's not going to happen. And I'm like, but I've also like seen the movie and everything before watching it. So I guess if you're watching it for the first time and you're not aware, which I think would be very difficult given how pervasive this is in pop culture. Yeah, at least in the U.S. for sure. (laughs) Right. But if you didn't know, there would still be this tension of like, are they going to get out and get Mm. there happily ever after? Yeah. But anyway, that that whole sequence was great. The soundtrack was amazing. You get that really like horror high pitched strings in the background, like a ringing after the thing. Absolute tone shift. Once they hit the berg. Oh my God. The closing of the doors is my worst nightmare. It's it's like the worst Indiana Jones trap you've ever seen. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> we are we are in a horror movie in the back it's, half. Yes, and when you when you said that to me, that definitely changed the way that I I like thought about it. I I was already like, this is great. They've contributed all yeah. this, but it's like, oh yeah, it is absolutely disaster horror. <laughs> it it a hundred percent is, and the way they escalate it too, because you have Rose and Jack see the iceberg and kind of realize something's up. And then at one point you have the people going to Andrews. You have Andrews walking down the hall with 
his blueprints. Mm-hmm. And basically the scene of Andrew's explaining to the captain, like we're fucked because he's going through, he's like, these have flooded, these have flooded, these have flooded, these have flooded. He's like, that's five compartments. And they're like, okay, so what, what should we do? Like, da, da, da. And he's like, you don't understand. She can stay afloat with four flooded compartments. That's five. And just the look on everyone's faces of like the dawning realization of we're screwed. I Amazing scene there. Every single actor in this movie, no matter how like small the part, especially in this latter half, 100% doing their job. Like everyone is so good. And the dig at the end from the captain about uh, you're going to get your headlines. <laughs> Just oh. so, so great. So great. Chef's kiss. But you do see at one point, Andrews and all the captains are like walking past Rose and Jack. They hear some stuff. And that's when Rose is like, we need to, we need to like tell my mom and Cal, like we got to tell people. And of course, they go back, and Cal just wants Jack arrested. Love Sets slips him up. a necklace. Yep. And he's taken to the brig, which we know is just not a, a good plan. In given of that all the, the times to be in yeah, the brig, uh, not the right one. Around this point, we get to where the captain makes the decision of like we should start loading the lifeboats, or at least getting people up on deck to load the lifeboats and start loading women and children. Here we have. Cutting the di- the difference between how the first class passengers are informed versus third. Yeah. With the first class people, you know, they're going in, they're handing out the life jackets, being like, "Oh, there's nothing to worry about." But if you had come with me, they're so polite. Third class, open the door, throw in a bunch of life jackets, be like, "Get up, put on your life jacket." Ship sinking. Well, and they offer brandy to first class. And even, oh, yeah. was it Guggenheim was the one character who like storms down the stairs and is like, I'm in my best. I will not put on a life jacket. No, he does He does that later when it's clear the ship is sinking and he's like, we're dressed for our best. We'll go down in our best. Like, gentlemen, br- also bring me a brandy. I just, I cannot. I think he's interesting. We'll talk about him later and like the ways people are dealing with like the realization that like the ship is doomed. Because at this yeah. point, people aren't freaking out. Most people are just annoyed at this point Mm -hmm. because again, everyone is so convinced that the ship is unsinkable. And then there is a lovely bit of acting with Rose questioning Andrews and Andrews leveling with her. It's a, a great commentary on the character of Andrews and that despite having every reason to have a gigantic ego about this massive accomplishment that he has helped pulled off, still represents a much more human side to things. Whereas you have Ismay with the, he just cares about himself, sneaks onto a lifeboat and is like all about the headlines, like very clear, sinister corporate man. You have the coldness of the captain, which again, I take a little bit of issue with. He's a seasoned captain. He wouldn't be so passive. The way I interpreted that was that there is a point where the captain is just disassociating that like the level of the disaster that happened on his watch like breaks him, which I, I agree with you. Like I, I would have liked to see a, a little bit stronger characterization from the captain. Mm-hmm. I do think I think it's Bernard Hill who plays him. I do think does like you know a good job. It's a material issue. It's not an acting issue. Yeah, like, he was not. He he's a ship captain. He's a longtime ship captain. He is not just going to be passively. He's he's not going to be passive. That that's my I main think, yeah, complaint. I, I just, I took it as that there's a point where it kind of breaks him. But I, yeah, I, Andrew's, I, I love in the idea that he takes 
such responsibility of it. There's the line much later where he just looks at Rose and they're kind of goodbye and goes, I'm so sorry I didn't build you a stronger ship, young Rose. And I That was heartbreaking. Oh my heart. Heartbreaking. I love him. I'm oh love that character. Yeah. So Rose does not get into the boat, even though she, Cal and her mother are pleading with her. I love that she spits in Cal's face to get away. That is such a nice callback. So good. So good. I That's the moment where she makes the decision with the with the lifeboat, because it really is kind of make or break. It's like she can she can take the chance and go after, you know, the thing that she really wants. Mm-hmm. But if she gets in that lifeboat, her life doesn't change. She continues yeah. down like the road that she was set on and like. It's a great moment. I think Kate Winslet is absolutely kills it. She has a couple of those moments of like the decision to stay with Jack, the decision to mm-hmm. like do the more dangerous, more difficult, arguably stupider, if you're Ian, decision. It is stupider. It's emotional. I accept that it's emotional and I expect accept that people are not rational, but it still is infuriating. <laughs> but that is the only way her life changes. I mean- Dying is a change that I would prefer to not have. (laughs) We've already established that she is so distraught at her situation and the way that it's going and that she doesn't seem another, uh, see another way out that like death is preferable. See, you say that and now I'm about to say this and you're going to, you're going to change it because I know, I know it works both ways, but Jack's like, you would have never have jumped. And I'm like, okay, but she does jump. But she does jump. Metaphorically, with him. she does jump. And I accept that. She physically jumps I, with him too. I'm j i am I I like to think of myself as a pragmatist at times. And the pragmatic choice here is not to get off that lifeboat. <laughs> so it's to continue with the miserable life under the two controlling people who are like going to make you miserable inevitably. Like again, she doesn't like it is a drastic choice, but it is the only choice for Rose if she wants to If, if we want to have an awakening style walk into the ocean at the end sort of situation on our hands, sure. <laughs> Just saying that I'm anyway, right. We will and not Ian come to an accord wrong. on this argument. Um. And his heart is more frozen than the people who went into the ocean at the end of this movie. And that's all I'm saying. I don't have a counter argument for any of that. So... <laughs> Because if Rose gets on the lifeboat, you know what we don't get? The amazing sequences of her rescuing Jack and the cinematography in the flooding halls at the bottom of the ship. Kate Winslet absolutely killing it with the acting. The impeccable sound design of there's no score. You just start getting more and more the creaks of the metal of the ship. That... It's so Multiple good. Multiple times I wrote it's down. so distressing to it watch. It really is. <laughs> it is so good. So Rose does ultimately get Andrews to tell her where Jack's being held. Yeah. And, I, and I love that she's like, I'm doing it with or without your help. And without your help, it's going to take me a long time. Because Andrews has already laid out the clock for the sinking and how much time we have. And we know it's not much. It's hammered home that she is like alone in this quest when she gets off the elevator and the operator's like, fuck this, I'm out. And like, I would be too. Are you kidding? Like, oh, yeah. By all oh, yeah, accounts. Yeah, because they get to the bottom and the water starts flooding in. And also, like, remembering, and they've hammered it home a couple of times, and they actually do a really nice job in that first meeting with Jack and Rose when he's trying to talk her down, and he's talking about how cold Mm -hmm. the water is and how a jump from that height might kill you, but it might just hurt you. Because all of those things that have been stated 
we're remembering as we're watching Rose wade through the water. And the first time she gets out, it's probably about knee height. And it is apparently the water, because they were using like ocean water to do that, was like really that cold. And her that gasp that she goes in when she goes in and it's like chest height was like really just Kate Winslet's reaction. <laughs> I I have issues with that. I okay, I could have sworn that actors guilds had like a requirement that the water not be dangerous. <laughs> but anyway. I'm sure they did, but I think with this one it's like she because of her costume, she can't wear a wetsuit under it. Oh no, um, I mean like the water should have been warmer for her sake. But that anyway, they're also just she's also just in it for yeah, a really long yeah. time, too. Like, yeah. So um, what a challenging suit, uh, shoot. The first time she goes to find Jacket's knee height, they need to try and find a key. And then her going to hunt for someone and just there's no one around. And she's nearly lost in this like labyrinth. I would. Oh, I would have been lost. I'm terrible with directions. The minute. Andrew starts giving her directions and it's more than two directions. I'm like, I would have been lost in the belly of that ship. Jack and I both died yep. right there. Yep. Now I would say, uh, I specifically made a note here, less kissing, more saving. And she does more saving by finally. I also have that note. I'll be honest. I also have that note. I think I actually have the exact same note of more of less kissing, more saving, <laughs> <laughs> like almost word for word. Um, but there is the moment where she meets, and I feel like this is the final evolution of her character, is when she meets that panicked steward and is trying to get him to go help. She's like, there's a man trapped, there's a man trapped, and he's not listening to her. He's just trying to pull her along. You know, understandably, they're in a very chaotic situation, although I will say, and I will stress, panicking never helps. Deal with the situation first. Panic can fall apart later. But she stops him and punches him, because he's not mm-hmm. listening to her. And I feel like that's the final thing. And it goes from Rose yelling for help from somebody else to breaking open the thing and getting the axe because she's there mm-hmm. is no help coming. She's going to have to fucking do this herself. And I feel like that moment is like final phase yeah. Rose. And I, I do love the comedic relief that they have when she actually goes to use it where Jack's like, how about you practice first? <laughs> how about just a couple pa- practice swings? He's going like, no, no, choke. <laughs> choke up on the axe a little bit more (laughs) and then the him like just closing his eyes and turning away am i gonna lose a finger or just be free (laughs) Uh, but their relief both of them when it works Mm -hmm. and kind of the moment of celebration immediately followed by the oh shit we gotta go there are like little moments of like comedy yeah so, so earlier in the sequence, we do have scenes where the third class passengers are being locked below deck. As far as I know, this didn't actually happen, but it does up the suspense for Jack and Rose who run into these gates. Well, of course, because we're once again, we're in a mm-hmm. horror movie now. And what is more horrifying than a blocked exit? I just I, this this movie I have seen before, but it was been so long that I had forgotten the minutia of nightmare fuel uh, that it has provided. So it's like, cool, new fears unlocked. I'm thanks Titanic. Yeah, I know for real. But, and I also do think like those gates are definitely also symbolic, right? Of like the barrier, the class Mm -hmm. barriers and stuff like that. And like agreed. I do think I, it would be tough to imagine those. Like it seems just very unwise to lock passageways in a sinking ship. But also I think, Part of what it's getting at, too, is because some everyone was so convinced that the ship is unsinkable, right? No one's prepared for when it sinks. Mm-hmm. 
Like there's no plan. Yeah. So anyway, they, they do ultimately escape after, you know, there was that beautifully suspenseful scene with the one steward who does actually try and help them by unlocking the gate, drops the keys. And he's like, well, y'all are on your own. <laughs> I don't understand. I would have just given them the keys and then I mean, run. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Anyway, they do escape. There's some more of that comedic relief around like, oh, you're going to have to pay for that door you just broke, which is just the most (laughs) absurd statement. Ludicrous. In the midst of a ship sinking. Like, come on. Come on. Yeah. So we are now focused focused more on the like chaos on deck getting into lifeboats. It has this backdrop of the band playing, which is just like, again, the absurdity and the for me, at least the last song they play, sorrow that that brings at their like resignation of their own death. Like I, oh, oh, oh. The final song. We will talk about that moment when we get to it. That is the moment that every single time I have watched this movie ever, mm. I lose it. The band is great and, and historically accurate. Like there, there were written accounts from survivors that like the band played the ship down. Ugh. Hold on. Sorry. I just said that. And it's like, it's fine. Let's talk about Cal now because that's going to like make you not sad because he's an asshole. Okay. Okay. Cool. (laughs) He's again, the derangement of this man. He is so upset about his inability to control Rose that he doesn't get on a lifeboat when he has the chance to. Instead, he is so upset that Rose isn't there. We have also seen him put a bunch of cash and the heart of the ocean in the pocket of Mm -hmm. his overcoat. Well, and the cash also was trying to pay off one of the, the ship uh, staff to get him. Oh, it comes back. So great. It comes back in the best point, but we have seen, it's like things start relatively orderly. They're getting, you know, women and children from first class into the lifeboats. There is later a point where Andrews points out, like, why are these boats going out half empty? Like, why are they not more? And they're like, well, we didn't want it to capsize. And he They've was like, tested. they are tested <laughs> to hold. They, they were tested to hold up to 70 men. You can safely assume 65 people yeah. on them. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, I Andrews initially is the only one who has the clear idea of just how fucking bad this is about mm-hmm. to get. And like that there is no stopping it. There is only minimizing the yeah. damage. But Jack and Cal get Rose on a lifeboat. Also, notably, Cal has put his overcoat on Rose because she sloughed mm-hmm. off her coat at one point when she was trying to save Jack. Which is great because uh, just remember, it's a shell game. Remember, remember where that. the heart of the ocean is. Yes. They get her on a boat. You have Cal lie. You have the moment where Cal and Jack both lie to get her on the boat where Cal's saying, I've secured a lifeboat. There's a spot for both me and Jack. And Jack, he knows again, goes with it. He goes with the lie for Rose. Yeah, because you have that moment where he's like, Cal says you're a good liar. And Jack goes almost as good as you. Oh, so good. (laughs) So good. But then this is the moment where Rose, as the boat's being lowered, she's watching all of the people around her in the boat saying goodbye to their loved ones. And the amount of just like small vignettes we see of like families being separated, people getting injured and freaking out and everything. We have, there's a moment, I don't know if it's before or after this point where you have Murdoch, is it Murdoch or it might be one of the other officers, you know, pulls the gun to keep people at bay from the lifeboat and then you see him turn around and actually load it because mm-hmm. it wasn't. And it was just like a bluff he had to make. Like we're seeing the deterioration and the panic creep in. 
So Rose watching all of the people having to say goodbye and realizing that like she can't mm-hmm. do that. And so she jumps from the lifeboat back onto the ship. Yeah. Oh. And Jack running down to meet her. And I just, I love the moment of him just like kissing so her in between stupid. kisses being like, you're so stupid. I, it's, he was us in that. I mean, I get it, but I don't get it. But like, <laughs> I just love that mixture of emotions of being like, like loving her so much mm-hmm. and being happy that she like loves him to come back, but also just being like, you idiot. Yeah. Now, throughout all of the scene, I, I do want to make mention at how impressive the sets and the effects and the scale of the operation all are because you do see the ship coming out of the water, like at an angle as it slowly is pulled down and gets to vertical, like all of the kind of technical side of things was damn near perfect throughout this editing too. Like absolutely. Well, and then even just like, choreographing these scenes like you're dealing with so many extras you've also got stunts happening like the scene is pure chaos and then you also just again highlighting the art design the way they would cut back to like all of the china falling off the cabinets and breaking um you have just like the stuff floating in the water uh, as the ship fills eventually it gets to the main dining room and you have the chairs and the tables of the main dining room floating and it's like all of the stuff that happened in that dining room, all of the gatekeeping and the the properness and everything, like where has that gotten you? Nowhere. Yeah. One last bit with Cal. He basically absconds with a child as a reason to get on a lifeboat. Well, we have the bit where he steals Lovejoy's gun oh, and starts shooting yeah. at Jack and Rose because he's so furious that Jack got Rose. And then he started laughing about the heart of the ocean being in the coat. <laughs> I love the bit where he starts laughing and Lovejoy's like, what? And he was like, I put the diamond in the coat and I put the coat on her. And I love the idea of like his his putting on the show of being the lo- the loving fiance is like the thing that bit him in the ass. Yeah, that is. Oh, that is a great. Mm, I hadn't thought of it that way. That's good. It's like a it's a lovely little. So good. Yeah. But he gets off. Anyway, fuck him. Oh, yeah. He he finds a kid that was, like, hiding and crying and, like, runs up to one of the boats and is like, I have a child and I'm all she has left. And, like, and clearly later doesn't care oh, about the child. He kind of just, like, puts it aside and something. But I do love the scene where he had previously paid Mur- Murdoch. And there is the bit where he could get on the boat but instead decides to go after Rose and Jack because he's so driven by, like, this hatred of them yeah. and, like, his inability to not control something that he goes after them, but I love Murdoch throwing the money back in mm-hmm. his face and saying, your money's not going to save you any more than it will save me because Murdoch knows he's going down with the ship. Yep. Well, and then Murdoch does go crazy and shoots another passenger and then promptly shoots himself, which like, yes. again, just yeah. the level of degeneration that we have seen across the the state of the sinking. But I, they, meaning Jack and Rose, slowly make their way up to the back of the ship where they are perched for the final sinking where they first met which is so poetic i and then they also bring back the if you jump i jump lines throughout this i think rose might say it first when she like gets back on the boat Mm -hmm. and she and jack are reunited like the way they bring back all of the sweet little moments in their relationship up to that point is just oh and then yeah you have the sequence of Mm -hmm. they're at the back of the ship you have the ship breaking 
which we were told in the diagram earlier when like the very clinical, this is how it happened. When you see it come down and then you see it continue to be pulled and pulled completely vertically. With that too, they interjected it with vignettes across the ship of people resigned to their fate. And that is what got me. The first class couple in the bed, the kids in steerage, like, oh. Which the first class couple in the bed, I think it was the Strausses, the owners of Macy's or something. Like they were connected to like the Macy's wow. family. Like, it, like that's based off of real people. You have the captain standing on the bridge. You have Andrews stopping the clock. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I'm tearing up again. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, again, the band with their final song as they play it down and the the one violinist being like, it's been an honor, gentlemen. Like, oh. Very Just, emotional. So well done. Oh my God. Like, yeah. I'm I'm bawling at this <laughs> point. Like, just straight up. Yes. Bawling. Which, and I've seen this movie multiple times. It had been a little while, but I mm-hmm. still. Yep. And all of a sudden we are in the water. Oh my God. The moment where... Jack and Rose go under and it's kind of the, just the sound of the water and them kicking furiously. And then when they break the surface and it's once again chaos, it's the reminder of like the ship is now officially sunk. This nightmare is not over. And more amazing work by the sound team here. It is a crowd yelling and screaming in anguish the whole time. And the way it will cut from being in the crowd to being in one of the lifeboats and you can hear it And I just like the horror at every turn. And you have the bit where Molly Brown is like, we need to go back. We need to get people. But the officers in the lifeboat are like so scared that they'll swamp the lifeboat and their lifeboat will get overturned. Once again, I just like to nail home like Rose's mother and how despicable she is. She doesn't say a word, but she knows her daughters. And nobody does in that. it's, It's Molly alone. Nobody does. Molly's alone. I really struggle with this because on, on on one level, I really appreciate and want to support that like human side of Molly. But then when you go to the practical side of things, what good does it help of the lifeboat being swamped? And this is an impossible decision. Like, I mean, that's why it's a tragedy. Like you understand both sides. Like I, like you want them to go back and help. And you know, we have the bit of Rose and Jack getting to the door. I would like to reiterate, yes, they can both fit on the door, but it's not about measurements. It's about buoyancy. And they show him trying to get on the door with her and it's almost flipping and sinking. Leonardo DiCaprio does a great bit of facial ocular acting with this. Because <laughs> ocular that's the acting. I'm going to remember that. Ocular acting. <laughs> it only took a hundred and something episodes for me to coin the term. But the realization of Jack that like they they aren't both going to make this and his decision that Rose goes on the door. I did not like his speech here. I think it was a little... Like, I liked parts of it, but I was also like, why do you have to talk about making tons of babies? Like, is that really the only thing after talking about all the things that you were going to do and that she ultimately does? And like, I. Well, she also has babies. She has a granddaughter. Fair, Um, But I'm just like, that's your last word to Rose. Like, that is half of your last word. It's 1912. Okay, I hear you. (laughs) And I think. 
the point of the speech is you are going to go out there and you're going to have a great mm-hmm. life. Like you will build the family that you have not had. You will do all the things. You will ride a horse, not side saddle. Like, you know, all of the things she's going to do um, and the life she's going to have. I did love the end about dying as an old lady warm in your bed. And I will say a couple times in here, like to take a hard left turn really fast, the the special effects team was loving their like steam and silt billows and all of that throughout this entire film. So like they got the breath like fog. Well, they also apparently the cast, like their clothing and hair, they put mm. wax in it so that it has that like wet look to it. And they also had like a powder that when it interacted with water would crystallize. So that's how you get like the frost forming on like people's hair and stuff. You have the the officer with the whistle whistling mm-hmm. for the lifeboats and them not coming. And then eventually the whistle no longer is happening after we cut with some understanding that some time has gone by. Them coming back to try and rescue people was it's people sickles, like, which is really, Oh, I, re- I remember it. I remembered it. Um, it is it is a horrifying sequence, but it really does drive home just like the scale of the tragedy. And then you have because you have the one officer who's getting the lifeboats together, and he's like, "Okay, we're going to transfer everyone from this lifeboat into one of the other lifeboats, and then we're going to go back and search for survivors." Which is a great solution to the swamped lifeboat. It is. It really is. But they waited too long, and they're just going through the field of frozen bodies, and no one's alive. No one's alive. No one's alive. Rose is still semi-conscious. She's singing a song that like she and Jack, one of them had sung earlier as she's looking up at the stars. The delirium and like she's not with it as she's looking up at the Milky Way. Again, Kate Winslet, absolutely killing it. And and the like horse delivery of her lines here. And as she realizes the boat is there and is trying to scream for them to come back. And then her trying to wake Jack realizing that he's not going to wake, sealing her promise that like she will survive and never let go, which she means metaphorically. I know because a lot of people are like, she says she'll never let go. And then she like takes his fro, like lets go. And he, fl- it's metaphor people. Calm he's down. gone. Calm down. So anyway, she, you know, Jack sinks into the ocean. Um, you have her horse trying to yell for the boat to come back and then making the decision to go for the guy who had the whistle and she pulls the whistle out of the the frozen mouth. Yeah. But just the like defiant look on her face as the, you get the flashlight on her. Yeah. Of like, she, f- she somehow survived against all odds. Um, and then of course we cut back to our frame story. Before we cut back though, I do want to make one last comment about how they colored this part. Cause it is, they, I realize that in some senses it, it someone some people may consider it like a little heavy, but like you go from the contrast from the golden sunset to this ice cold blue water wasteland and you break it with the flashlight warming her face. And like, I just loved that visual parallel to literally what is going on. Yeah. It's, it's God, it's so well done. Um, but we cut back to our frame story and that's when, you have Rose being like a hundred or was it fifteen hundred people mm-hmm. went into the water that night. One lifeboat came back and six people survived going into the water. And it's like you you cut and you have like the crowd of people listening to the story. You've got tears going down people's cheeks, like 
Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I'm fully sobbing. Mm-hmm. We get the final defiant move by Rose as well, where she does not draw Cal's attention to her as she is sitting with the other steerage passengers on the Carpathia. Her giving her name as Rose Dawson when they arrive in New York. I rolled my eyes at that a little bit, but you know that's what? I'm fine. I'm fine with it. She's, she's starting over. You know, let her have it. Um, and they had alluded sure. at that previously. <laughs> they were like, oh, yeah, her name's like Rose DeWitt Bucketer died on the Titanic when she was 17. Like, this is Rose Dawson Calvert. And she was like an actress and stuff. So we like, mm-hmm. she goes after the life that she really wanted. She's yeah. going to keep her promise to Jack. Let's talk about the ending. Oh, the ending is so good. I uh, It's really good. Now, I do wish she hadn't thrown it into the ocean at the I end, as Britney she, Spears no, would say. I um, love that she threw it into the ocean <laughs> because then Britney Spears gets it back and oops, I did it again. Okay, fair. The sequel fair. to Titanic. Um, but the but, noise she makes as she throws it in is well, it's like, just like oops. this little oops. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's perfect. I, I like her throwing the thing back into the ocean because it's her giving her heart back to the Titanic. I love the symbolism. My practical brain is like stop being practical (laughs) okay i'll suspend that for now fuck practicality but she's back in her bed and as you have alluded to we get to pan over the pictures that she has brought and they're not family pictures it's rose doing all the things that you know she and jack said she was gonna do it's all of it i love the idea that no matter where she goes she keeps all the things that he helped give her Mm -hmm. with with her and it's like the idea that she did never let go like she held on to him and kept the promise to like go on and to die an old lady warm in, in her, her bed. bed which is not explicitly said but come on we got oh, a shining sure. ending of her joining the titanic and also just like the the perfection of like that being like she kept the promise she did all those mm-hmm. things like yeah and and then you have like the dream like she comes back it's shot like we're seeing it out of her eyes and we're seeing all of the people who died on the Titanic, including the captain and Andrews. And then Jack is waiting for her on the staircase. Yeah. And it's kind of the reversal of when he saw her on the staircase earlier. Imagine if you were in steerage, though. That would really suck for that to be your afterlife. Sorry, I'm I mean, being too literal with this. <laughs> just just being like, when is Rose going to get here so we can all clap and go home? <laughs> um, yeah. I think it's a lovely little ending, and I'm here for it. I did like it. Now, there was some backing percussion in the soundtrack there that was, again, giving Vangelis, um, which, sorry, I really shouldn't dig at his soundtrack because the soundtrack is iconic. I just think it was not the right fit for Chariots of Fire. And that is an opinion I'm willing to die by. So that's your hill. More like a one small of your many. mound. <laughs> it's one of your many hills. <laughs> so for lists, um, I actually kind of struggled with this one because I'm running into the fact that past Ian is accidentally making current Ian's life really difficult. Okay, sometimes you have to sit with a movie for 
a little while in order to like really have it hit you. I, but I no, I ran into the same thing. We're going to just have to reorder at the end of the decade again. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to say this with like the region here is where I would expect Titanic to be. Now the specific ordering of these movies is a little bit wishy-washy. And in some ways I view them as equivalently good. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm putting Titanic at 20. Um, which is just behind Forrest Gump and just before on the waterfront. So I, I honestly really struggled with the ordering of Forrest Gump and Titanic. And I think what edged it out for me was the depth of the characters in Forrest Gump as compared to Titanic. Not saying that by the end, I wasn't completely bought in. You just bought in quicker on Forrest Gump? Way, way, way quicker. And I, I think, again, this is very much a reliance on my own opinions around this stuff, not like a however ill-advised attempt to add objectivity to this. So um, this is in no way me trying to diss. um, Oh, our lists are 100% subjective. Or Titanic, rather. We're ranking art. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, But I do want to say that I have Ordinary People at 18, and that, that was another one of those, like, really engaging character studies for me that I think do push you know, kind of the Titanic a little bit lower. Um, But when you compare it to On the Waterfront, which is at number 21 in my list, you just get such a different scale. On the Waterfront's my number four. So we have very... That's our opinions funny. are way different. It's, it's funny because I would say in a lot of ours, our opinions are very similar, but there are some where we just have drastically different opinions, and that's one yeah. of them. Um, Titanic is not one where we have drastically different opinions because I also put it at number 20. It, You know, it feels like it a feels, top third of the list movie, and it, it does. what do you know? <laughs> it does. So I actually have it just after Ordinary People. Similar thing, I think Ordinary People... Man, it's good, but it's a tough movie, but it is mm-hmm. it is also dealing it it is a tragedy, but it's dealing with a tragedy on like a, a smaller, you know, more contained scale within this immediate family. I, I think it's an incredibly well done movie. Um and I do think just the amount of time we spend with like those three main characters, or I guess four, because also the therapist and ordinary people, the amount of time we spend with them, like we really mm-hmm. just get an even more in-depth look at them. And I think like all of the performances are stunning in that. I do think like we we've mentioned some of the areas early on in Titanic that like maybe we could brush up a little bit more. I do think the latter half of Titanic is pretty much perfect in a lot of ways. Like it's just incredible. Um, it is above How Green Is My Valley just because mm-hmm. I uh, How Green Was My Valley I really love, but it is you know a little bit slower paced, which. I was fine with the time, but I know like can make it a little bit more of a challenge. I don't think it necessarily has the rewatchability of Titanic. So it's hilarious that how green with was my Valley is that high for you. And mine is at 47. I know you did not like that movie. (laughs) I really enjoyed it. Well, I mean, 47 is still on a list with 70 movies is not at the bottom bottom, but it is definitely not a movie that I plan to revisit. It's one that I'll revisit, but like not, with the frequency, I will Titanic. Mm, um, yeah. So yeah, I feel 20 feels good for Titanic. It does. And I, like to be completely honest, if we had had half as much of the character piece from, say, Ordinary People, that plus the level of scale and effects and just beautiful execution of this easily would have pushed it into my top 10, if not my top five. So I, I do really want 
to give credit to the visuals and the effects in the in, in Titanic because they are truly astounding. Agreed. And I, I like legitimately think like the second half of the film is a great study in how to do horror. Yeah. And and like thriller, but like, you know, it's it's most people would probably consider it more thriller than horror, but I would put it, you know, straddling that line. But I think like we knew what was gonna happen and it was still engaging. <laughs> we knew it was gonna happen and I still cared so incredibly much and cried so much and I cry every time when the band starts. But yeah, I do again, and I we've said this before, I do think that the movie sometimes get a, gets flack because of its popularity. And I think some people you know, want to try and like bash it because of like the strong sort of Romeo and Juliet, like love story that happens. Um, but you know what? I don't care. It's I'm absolutely not going to bash it. I do say that that did detract for me, but like not, not enough for me to totally like shit on it. <laughs> well, we can't all be as cold hearted as Ian. Your heart is the North Atlantic. Mine is the Caribbean. So how tropical of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that wraps it up for Titanic. Join us next time for Shakespeare in Love. Oh, which I'm actually very excited to cover. I don't know if you're familiar with that movie. I am. I have seen that movie, actually. And I think it's going to be a nice, refreshing Tom Jonesian experience. I don't remember a bunch about the first part of it, but like the the sequence where they do the play is like one of my one of my absolute favorites. Um, so join us next time for that. In the meantime, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at Best Pictures Pod on both. You can email us in at bestpicturespodcast at gmail.com. Rate, subscribe, review, all that fun stuff. And thanks for joining us on this uh, much delayed episode. We've, you know, we both had a lot going on, so we appreciate your support. We're we're working on getting back on our schedule. So uh, join us next time for Shakespeare in Love.